Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. But let me pray for us once more and then we'll jump in to our message today. Lord Jesus, um, there are, there is nothing more central to your word than the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. As we endeavor to see that today through the context of not only the four gospels, but through the whole of your word, we ask that it bears fruit for faith, for repentance, and for living. We pray this according to your promise in your name. Amen. So if you're new here at Sovereign Hope, we've taken a break from working through the Gospel of Luke in an eight-week series that goes through the whole of the Bible. And what we want to do is we want to help you read it better, because the more we could hear God's Word and read God's Word, the better we worship God, the more comfort we have in life. This is uh, our daily bread. And what we have been seeing through this series is that this Bible, those 66 books, is one story. The story of God redeeming a broken people through the work of Jesus Christ. And we've been tracking that in three ways. That story comes to bear as we see God seeking to redeem his people, to bring them into his place, and to rule them by his perfect presence. And so far, we have successfully completed our walk through the Old Testament. And today we begin what is called the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament outlines kind of the Jewish scriptures, the the story of God's redemption, anticipating and looking forward to the birth of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament outlines God's redemptive program to save his people during and after the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, normally when I preach, I give an introduction. And as a preacher, my goal in that introduction is to do one thing. It's to convince you that God's word has something for you today. But as I read through the gospels in preparation to this sermon, I realized that these books, these four books, are simply the world's greatest introduction. You need what these books are talking about. What's contained in the historical accounts and the theological reflections on the life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ is an ending. It's an ending of an old age. It's an ending of the law according to the flesh. But it's also a beginning point. It introduces not the end of our life or the end of our faith or the end of our story, but an introduction into the next stage, the stage of grace, glory, and growth according to the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ for the glory of God the Father. You see, whatever you think about the historicity of the events surrounding Jesus Christ, it is not the final question on the exam of life. In fact, you can, you can affirm all of the historic acts of Jesus Christ and miss the point of the Gospels. This instead is designed to be the next step for the rest of your life. The story we see today, especially in the seven weeks le- or the five weeks leading up to this, shows that this is nothing more than the continuation of God's storied plan to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. Therefore, these Gospels are the most important chapters of the book but they're not the end of the book. In fact, in many ways, it's the beginning of what it looks like for you and I to participate in God's continued plan to redeem and his continued course of human history. It's what makes sense of today. And so as we've done in this series, we're gonna seek to do three things together. First, we're gonna study, or we're gonna survey the story and we'll see what happens in the story and how it relates to Jesus Christ. 
then we're going to study the story. That's how we understand the story in terms of its context, in terms of its writing, and how we apply it to our own lives. And lastly, we're going to savor the Savior of the story. That is to put ourselves under the thrust of Scripture, that it makes us worship Jesus. And here's why I want to urge you to pay attention today. Because as we will see, and this is to the point of being redundant throughout the whole sermon today, that to affirm the gospel, if you ever wondered what the gospel is, we say it this way at Sovereign Hope. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. To affirm that statement is not merely to affirm true. It's to affirm the story we've been tracking the whole time through this book. It's a story that makes sense of human history. It's a story that makes sense of the significance and worth of Jesus Christ. Apart from affirming the story that comes before, Jesus is perhaps meaningless to the needs he meets in the gospel. It's a story that if affirmed, if believed in, sweeps up your story as well. If what we see in these four books is true, we cannot merely affirm it as an act of our mind. But instead, to believe what it says is true is to be swept up inside of it and pulled along in the course of human history itself for the glory of God. And this is what we're going to see today as we begin our first point, which is to survey the story. To survey the story. And so what we're looking at today are the four Gospels. And these are not four different Gospels. It's not that you get to pick and choose which good news is good for you. It's the four accounts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel simply means evangel. It's the good news. And so it's four historic accounts of the same person in his ministry from four different angles. These books, if you're unfamiliar with them, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John were two of Jesus's 12 apostles. Mark and Luke were close followers and disciples of Jesus's apostles. And the goal of all four of these authors was not simply to tell you the gospel. I just told you the gospel in a sentence. The good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. That would be a lot easier to read in your morning devotion than sitting down and reading the whole book of Matthew. But that's because their goal was to not just tell you the gospel, but to show you the gospel. Yes, they have beautiful moments of truth statements. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. But more importantly, they want to show you why and how this is true and this is good. And wouldn't you want to know that? Wouldn't you want to know that the airplane you're about to fly on is in fact fit? Or the surgeon about to perform your surgery is capable then if something that claims to save you from eternal judgment and reshape the whole of your life, wouldn't you want to know how and why it's true? You see, Christianity, contrary to what your coffee mug might say, is not a religion of blind faith. It's the religion of informed faith, reasoned faith, witnessed faith, faith rooted in history itself. This is why John, who wrote one of the Gospels we look at today, opens one of his letters saying this. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this we proclaim to you. We believe in faith in a God we cannot see, but not in a God who has not acted, not in a God who has not spoken. 
And we have been tracking since page one of the Bible, this God's plan to redeem a broken people and to call them back to perfection by making them his people in his presence and in his place. That's what Adam and Eve had in the garden, what sin destroyed and what God shows himself willing to redeem throughout the pages of this story. And all of the gospel writers place the events of Jesus right in line with that story. You can't understand the good news of the gospel apart from understanding this. Look at how Matthew opens his gospel in the form of a genealogy in Matthew 1 verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He roots the birth of Jesus in the line of Israelites from David, Israel's truest and finest king in the histories, to Abraham, the father who is of Israel itself. And then John goes back even further. If you consider or remember, perhaps, the opening verse in the whole Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Consider how John opens his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you have your Bible open in front of you, down in verse 14, he clarifies that this word made flesh is Jesus Christ. And so what do we have here in John chapter 1? We have a new in the beginning, a new Genesis. Here we see that it's happening. The new creation we've been anticipating since Genesis chapter 3 is coming to bear. The long-awaited recreation of God's people in God's place under God's presence. We cannot understand the birth of Jesus or the work of Jesus if we don't understand the problems and promises of the Old Testament. The Old Testament makes it clear our greatest problem is sin that separates us from God. We are cast out of God's presence, moved out of God's place, and no longer God's people, not on account of where you live, the color of your skin, or how much you donate to the church, but on account of the sin in your heart. But it's also the promise that God himself is going to do something about it. Where sin separates, the God of scripture seeks out those who have been separated by sin. You see, oftentimes you'll hear some fancy scholar in a classroom or on social media make the case that Christianity is merely the Romanized or modernized version of Judaism. That we love Jesus and we love his teachings on morality. But to say that Jesus was creating a new religion or adding to a religion is some sort of historical irreverence or intervention onto something that was otherwise pure and good on its own. But how did Jesus view himself? And how do you view Jesus? Well, consider Jesus's own words in Matthew chapter 26, where he says this in verses 55 through 56. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching And you did not seize me. But all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets, that is the Old Testament, 
might be fulfilled. Consider also Jesus's words in the book of John. John chapter 5, verses, uh, which was Paul already read for us. We'll begin in 5 verse 39. He's speaking to the Pharisees here. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That is, you Pharisees are looking at the Old Testament law. You're looking at the promises to David. You're looking at the covenant made to Moses because you think in them is eternal life. But what does Jesus say? It is they that bear witness about me. The whole Old Testament was pointing towards Jesus. Pick up in verse 46 and 47. What does it mean to listen to Moses? What does it mean to read the Old Testament? For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We can't believe in Jesus truly unless we believe who Jesus is according to God's story. Notice Jesus' words to his disciples in Luke chapter 22, verses 37. Or verse 37, he says this, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And now he's quoting the Old Testament. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what was written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus saw himself as the continuation of the Old Testament story and the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. It was how Jesus understood himself. It was how Jesus communicated himself. Is that how you understand Jesus? When you think about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to be, does it meet Jesus's own description? Is Jesus as important to you in the same way that Jesus' purpose was important to himself? You see, it's only when we do this, when we understand who Jesus is according to Scripture, that we can endeavor to discover our main point today as we look at Jesus in the Gospels, and that is this. That is God in the flesh. When we read the Gospels of Jesus, we read and see God in the flesh. And as we've done in this story, we've always noticed that there's a narrative or a geographic progression. That's what's happening at the surface level. And there's also a theological progression. That's what's being proven at a spiritual level. And so on a narrative progression, this is what we see in the Gospels. The promise maker becomes the promise keeper. The promise maker becomes the promise keeper. In the Old Testament, we saw God make all sorts of promises to his people who failed to keep them. But in Jesus, the God who made the promise, the God who gave grace, the God who promised that sacrifices would atone for sin, took on flesh and fulfilled the promises. He entered into our history to do what we couldn't. And in so doing, as Jesus is doing this, we get glimpses into what the kingdom of God is like. When you read the Gospels, you'll read stories about miracles. And the miracles of Jesus show us what life would have been like if sin never crept into the garden. It's, in fact, an undoing of the human history of sin. We see that blind men see, that lame men walk, that deaf men hear, that dead men rise. If sin had never crept in, all the perfection we see in Jesus' life and ministry would have been ours. But sin ruined it and death invaded it and we corrupted it. But what we see when the promise keeper becomes the promise or the promise maker becomes the promise keeper that wherever Jesus is, there's glimpses of Eden. Wherever Jesus is, we see what it's like to be God's people in God's place with God's perfect presence. But theologically speaking, what we see in the gospel is this. It's nothing short than the triune triumph of God or the triumph of the triune God. 
And this is so important because what's drawn out in these gospel books is something that's hinted at over and over again in the Old Testament as we read of the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Spirit of God working, and God the Father covenanting. We see developed in these gospels that our God, the Christian God, the God of Scripture, is three persons in one God. Not three gods, but three persons in one God. That is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in contrast to to myths of Greek gods or anything else, the process of redemption is not a side task or sub-point to the existence of this triune God, but the whole person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, have so moved in Jesus Christ to accomplish all they said they would do. And so how do we see that triumph in the story of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm going to summarize really quickly here this story of how Jesus does this, how he triumphs over sin according to God's promise in six simple points. So they're not going to be on the screen, so I'm going to ask you to listen here. First, we see that the Gospels is the story of Jesus's virgin birth. In Isaiah chapter 7, it's promised that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. And in the womb of Mary, the eternally existing Son of God, was conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit according to the power of God the Father. That is to say, by the triune work of God, the eternal Son of God took on flesh, born of man and born of spirit in the womb of Mary. There is a new beginning in Jesus Christ. Second, it's the story of Jesus's perfect obedience. In Genesis chapter two, God gives Adam as this representative head, this command, obey, similar to what was read for us by Emily in Deuteronomy 30 today. Obey and it will go well, disobey and you will die. And Adam sinned. Just as Israel wrestled with the weight of the law throughout the Old Testament and heard it and couldn't keep it, Jesus came both fully God and fully man and obeyed perfectly. The new Adam resisted the temptation of the devil when he was tempted in the desert, where Adam failed when tempted in perfection. Israel couldn't keep the law in the best sense. And here comes Jesus who subjects himself in the flesh to every word of the law and obeys perfectly. And the eternal son of God born in the flesh had to be perfect in order for the story to advance. Because what we also see in the gospels is it's the story of Jesus's substitutionary death. His substitutionary death. If you remember in the book of Leviticus, we read in Leviticus 16 of this day of atonement. Where on account of the people's sins, a sacrifice would be made that carries away their sin so they could dwell in God's presence. Something dies so they don't have to. We already read in Luke 22 where Jesus speaks of this prophecy that he himself would be numbered among the transgressors. That is that he who had no sin would take the name tag of sin for the sinners who were actually guilty. Because he was fully God and fully man, he could die for the punishment of man's sins. Man needed to die for his sins. But because he was perfect and righteous according to the law in the flesh, but also God himself, his death didn't just count for him, but it counts for all who believe in him by faith. His righteousness, his rightness, his perfection can be yours. That's the beauty of the gospel. It substitutes your sin for Jesus's perfection. Jesus takes your punishment. You get his righteousness through faith. That's what the cross is about. But that's not the end. 
It's also the story of Jesus' physical resurrection. This week in our Bible reading plan, you guys read Psalm 16, where it says that the Lord's Holy One would not see corruption. Because he was fully man, he died substitutionally for sinners, but because he was fully God, death couldn't hold him down. He was raised to life by the glory of the Father, showing that all who are saved by God defeat death itself. And we too will rise as Jesus rose. But then in a twist, his disciples didn't expect, and we'll see that today and next week. It's also the story of Jesus' victorious ascension. He ascended up. And that might seem to us unimportant, just like the ending. He had to go somewhere. But this is in direct fulfillment of Second Samuel, where God promised that God's king would reign on the throne forever. And here is this death-defeating king, this king who cannot die again, who ascends to the right hand of God the Father and becomes what? The eternal king forever. Ruling and governing, not over a physical place, but over the entire of the, entirety of the world because he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And now we wait in history for that king to come back as our glorious ruling king and to establish his kingdom forever. But lastly, he's doing all of this, point six, by teaching and training his people to be born again people. Just how Ezekiel 36, 26 says that I will give you a new spirit. I'll put my name in your heart. I'll take your heart of flesh or take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus is living all of this out while calling people to himself and showing what it means to be born again. And that in a nutshell, virgin birth, perfect obedience, substitutionary death, physical resurrection, victorious ascension, and born again people is the narrative story that Jesus is enacting in the flesh in the gospels. But now let's talk about how we study this story. The Gospels themselves are, interestingly enough, almost a literary fulfillment of the Old Testament. Every genre of literature you encounter in the Old Testament shows up in one of these four Gospels. But on the whole, these Gospels are narrative. It's a story. And as we read the story, we need to prepare ourselves for some things. Because you might hear in your fancy college classrooms or on your TikTok channel, people picking up things like, hey, the book of John presents these stories in a different order. Then the book of Matthew, John places the cleansing of the temple at the end, where Mark includes it later on. So what does that mean? Does that mean that these stories aren't true? We don't need to worry about this. We don't need to worry about this because the events recorded in different order or in different aspects are actually emphasizing different accounts of the same truth. That doesn't mean they're not true. And same if you were to go to the book exchange and grab four books on the life of Abraham Lincoln, you might find, to your great relief, that they're four different books, that you don't have to read the same book four times. And that as these events focus on different aspects of Abraham Lincoln's life, they're all emphasizing a different and unique piece. That's not to say that because this one emphasized one aspect at a certain time and this one another, that one is true and one is false, but instead the many make the whole more clear. Each is emphasizing something in an attempt to highlight one thing or another. And the same can be true with where events are placed in a narrative. The goal of the gospel writers was not simply to give you a chronology. If that's true, they should have written a timeline with no commentary. Here's the date Jesus was born. Here's when he was baptized. Here's when he began his ministry. Here's when he was transfigured. Here's when he died. Here's when he ascended. Boom, that's it. But there's more. Why? Because they're teaching us the significance about the events. For example, if someone were to write an account of Sarah and my relationship, I imagine anyone who writes about it, I don't know who would, would include the story of our engagement. 
One might choose to emphasize the chronology and the highly romantic plan I had in place. The other might choose to widen the chronology and to begin the story of our engagement with the story of Sarah when she was young, eating a bad potato salad with bad mayonnaise and getting really sick and pledging from that point on to never eat mayonnaise and to hardly even be around it. They might also fast forward to when we began dating and Sarah told me on the date where I was planning on kissing her that she didn't want to kiss until she was engaged. And I said, me too, me too. Good talk. The biographer might actually downplay the actual ask of my proposal and fast forward to what happened after I hadn't eaten all day. A short hour later, when we came down from a mountain, because it was mountaintop experiences with Tyler, story of our lives, and, and I ate, unmistakably, a sandwich with mayonnaise on it. Here I was, finally able to kiss, but unkissable. Now, there's many events that happened in between that. That wasn't historically inaccurate for me to say it that way. And the biblical authors from different angles organize their stories not to reshape the narrative into what is false, but instead to emphasize the significance of the narrative. Just like I did in my story, to draw the attention to the fact that mayo showing up on my sandwich after a proposal was very significant. John seeks to emphasize Jesus as fully God and fully man, something we just saw in John chapter 5. Matthew highlights the way in which Abraham's promise to the nations was being fulfilled in Jesus' ministry by calling Gentiles to himself. Mark highlights Jesus as Daniel's son of man, who's instituting a new era. Luke shows how the transformative power of Jesus, something we'll resume here in a couple weeks, has power and purpose in the life of his disciples. But all of them are working to the end of showing in the ways in which Jesus causes God's people, God's place, and God's presence to be reconfigured and refocused in light of who he is. In three of these gospels, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says that he has come to do ministry so that he might declare to them the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And as we've read in the story so far, one of the plights of the Old Testament people is they never actually understand what God is doing at any point in time in regards to his people, his place, and his presence. Why? Because sin makes us dumb. Take that home today. That's free. Sin makes us dumb. Jesus wants to make us smart by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, they're constantly being like, ah, this is what it looks like to be God's people in God's place in God's presence. And God's like, you're missing it. All over. They're making idols all over. They're doubting God's goodness all over. They get in the promised land. They're wondering, is this done? And then meanwhile, when Jesus is here on earth, his disciples inherit that same short-sightedness. Jesus says, guys, here's the deal. I'm going to die and be crucified and raise again. And what do they do? They rebuke Jesus. That's not the way God will bring his people, his place, and his presence. Right after that, they begin to argue about who will be the greatest amongst themselves. Well, if Jesus is going, certainly I must be the greatest. This is what it looks like to be God's great people in God's presence, in God's place. Disciples turn away children from following Jesus. They turn away Gentiles from following Jesus because it didn't accord what they thought the good news of the gospel would look like. And Jesus was constantly being like, stop, stop doing the dumb things. Let me be the leader and you be my disciple. And I wonder how many of us need the same help the disciples and the Jews did. Perhaps one of the greatest needs we have is for Jesus to sit with us in the gospels and teach us the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The things that we constantly miss 
that only Jesus can make sense of. In the Gospels, Jesus is taking all of our hopes and longing, and he's showing us that he's now at the center of them because he is at the center of God's story. You will always wrestle with who is the star and what is the expectation of your life until you come to grips with the reality of who Jesus is. You will always wrestle with who's the star and what the expectation of your life is until you see Jesus for who he really is. Jesus wants to show you. Jesus wants to show you what it means to be a Christian. What do you think it means to be God's people? What makes a Christian a Christian? I can tell you how the Jews thought about it in their day, what it meant to be God's people. What you'll see as you read these four counts is they thought that as long as they were children of Abraham, as long as they were circumcised according to the law, as long as they had the right zip code on their birth certificate, as long as they went to temple, they were God's people. In John 8, the Pharisees boast to Jesus saying, Abraham's our father. We don't need you. But look at how Jesus responds to them in John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he who sent me. To be God's people is not merely to be born of Abraham, but to be born again out of a love for Jesus, God's son. John says this again in John chapter one, verses 12 through 14. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that's the name of the word, Jesus Christ, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is recreating God's people. And do you see how? By calling them to faith in him. You belong to God, not because of who you are or what you've done or what church you go to or because you read your Bible. Jesus makes us the people of God by calling us to have faith in him as God's perfect person, that he is everything that we are not, and he came to do everything we couldn't do so that we could be what we could never be. And how is Jesus God's perfect person? Well, because he is the presence of God in the flesh. Jesus is God's presence in the flesh. If you want to get to God, you must go through Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in John 14, 6 through 7. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Remember, that's been the goal since page 2 of the Bible. We were removed from the presence of God by, by our sin. We want to get back to the Father. How do we get to the Father? No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How do we know Jesus can get to the Father? What does Jesus mean there when he says, when you see him, you see me? It means to see Jesus is to see the Father because he's equal with him. This is why Jesus was murdered. Jesus wasn't murdered because it was a revolution turned wrong. Jesus was murdered, we already saw in John five eighteen because he was calling even God his own Father, making himself equal with him. Why is it important that Jesus was the full presence of God, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man? Because being both fully God and fully man, it was only Jesus who could do what the Messiah needed to do to save us sinners. Look back again at John chapter 1, 1 verse 29. 
The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then look at what happens in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 and 7. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, Jesus being the presence of God in the flesh is able to remove sins and forgive sins because he is the one whom your sins have offended. If someone out there goes and throws hot coffee in your face, you could come and tell me. But I can't forgive you for that because the sins weren't committed against me. They're committed against somebody else. They need to forgive you. I can't pardon you for them. But Jesus here forgives sins. How? Because all of our sin that is against God is against Jesus Christ. And so he can finally forgive. In the flesh, forgiveness is possible in Jesus Christ. And this is where we see where God's place is developed in Jesus. Jesus is God's perfect person. He's God's perfect presence. But where do we go if we want the hope of restoration? Where do we go if you want to come worship God? Where do you go if you want the relief of Eden? In the Old Testament, the place was clear. It was the temple. It's what everyone was fighting for. Everyone was trying to build. Everyone was fundraising for. Everyone was trying to restore. It's where God dwelt. It's where sins were forgiven, where atonement was made possible, and where worship was offered. But look at this dialogue in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then, then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is making this audacious claim that he is the temple of God. He is the place in which we go to meet with God. That's why miracles follow Jesus everywhere he went. He is the place where the kingdom is. Where the king is, so is the kingdom. And here's where we encounter something shocking. Look at what Jesus says in John 14. John 14, verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Where is the place? Where's the perfect place of God? If we love Jesus, if we keep his word of responding in faith and repentance, he will come to us with God the Father. That's how perfect Jesus is. He doesn't just appease himself or appease the Holy Spirit. He appeases the whole Trinity. And they come to do what? To dwell with us, to make their home with us. And here's where we encounter something really profound by the end of the Gospels. If you came here today, this is what you need to hear. Jesus is a big deal. Jesus really matters to everything in this story. Jesus modeled and showed us what God's perfect people, perfect place, and perfect presence looked like because he embodied it in his divine identity and he showed it in his human ministry. But despite 
Jesus being the new temple, look at what's said here. In the same chapter, John 14, you don't even turn your page. Look at verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. Now, wait a minute. Where is the place? It was in Jesus. And then it's Jesus through faith, through God the Father's house. But now Jesus is like, he's going to a place. And he's preparing a place. So where's God's place? Is it here? Is it there? Is it yet to come? And what about Jesus as God's presence? You see, despite Jesus being fully God and fully man, he went up on this mountain, this thing called this transfiguration. And there Jesus, the same Jesus who is God's presence in the flesh, this veil was torn up. And they see Jesus in this radiant glory for just a moment. And so even when Jesus was God's presence in the flesh, there's still an aspect of his divinity, of his glory that is veiled. And then when Jesus rises from the dead, we see him in all of that glorious splendor, once again, light bright Jesus in perfect glory, manifested for all the world to see. Here we go. We've done it. And then what does he do? He leaves. (laughs) When you get to that ascension point, forget you know the last quarter of the Bible. What we just saw was every bit of hope of the story, peace out. And we're still here. But this is where we return to the idea that the gospel is the world's greatest introduction. One of the main things Jesus was doing as he was preparing his disciples was preparing them for this next stage. You see, Jesus isn't merely after convincing you to believe in him. He's after preparing you to follow him. And a stage where he ascended victoriously as the eternal king forever, he leaves us with two promises, two promises that will be our next two sermons. The first promise, when he ascends, he will pour out his Holy Spirit, will give us power to be his witnesses to the ends of the age. And the second is that he's coming back. And why is this important? It's important because we read the events of Jesus' life. As you believe the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, do not fall into the lie that the story is over. Jesus has shown us confidently that redemption has been accomplished. It is finished. The law of sin and death has been destroyed by Jesus Christ. The burden of your punishment for all who believes has been finally, fully, and effectively struck from the record. And Christ's righteousness stands today in your place for all who would have it. That's the good news of the gospel. But it also shows that God is not done with his program of salvation. There is still a future place that Jesus is preparing there is still a future presence, which even at the end of these books is yet to come. What we see in the gospels is that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God so that by his power, you might begin to live out the next stage of the story of redemption. If you go online, you could read of articles, I just did it this week, of those who are posthumously pardoned. That is after their death, a court who condemned them or convicted them of a specific crime, 
looked back at the evidence, and they pardoned them. They declared them to be innocent, guilt-free. And yet, the problem is that even though their verdict has changed, they're dead. It means nothing to them. They're innocent. They have been declared innocent. Not guilty is their verdict. And unfortunately, I think for many of us in the Western world, we are content with a posthumous gospel. We want the verdict of innocence according to Jesus Christ, but we don't care if our life is still dead. If that verdict was simply the end of our story. But if we understand the story of Scripture, there's no such thing as posthumous pardons. Because salvation itself and how we are restored to life in God's perfect presence, in his perfect place as God's perfect people, is what we were saved for. It's not merely the relief of the burden of sin, but return to life in the kingdom. When we come to believe in Jesus, we're invited into a new life where Jesus is still working. The story of salvation is still moving. And look at how John puts this in the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So here's the truth. The gospels are insufficient. They're not true. Why? Because it's not true of all the good that Jesus did. He did more, and he did it better than we could ever imagine. He fulfilled more than we could ever put our finger on. These are a shorthand account of the surpassing beauty of Jesus Christ. Not all the books in the world could capture his glory, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but that's not all, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why does the gospel come to us? Why is the gospel proclaimed to us? Why does the Holy Spirit open our eyes so that we might see, so that you might have life? Life here, life now, life that looks at this moment in time, not as your own, not as belonging to our current moment in American history, but belonging to the broader story of God's redemption from day one to day end. It sweeps us up in the process of redemption. We are not yet done. God's plans are still unfolding and he has invited you into it. We'll talk about this more next week, but the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in our hearts through faith is still perfecting us, even though Jesus has done perfect work in us. The gospel is still working in our world. As we pray today for Turkey and for Syria, there are many in those nations yet to call on the name of the Lord. The story is not done, but life has been given to you so that you might live. In light of it, there is a home of which Jesus is laboring for you even today. And when you encounter the pain of brokenness in this world, we cannot understand it apart from this story. It hurts because we're not home. It exists as a painful moment because a pain-free world is yet to come. But we know that that world will come. Why? Because Jesus took the true pain of our sin and our separation. You see, the end of each gospel account, as you read it, is simply a beginning. None of these books end with a catechism question, what therefore is the gospel believed? But each of them ends with a commission of what the gospel looks like lived. 
And this is the final point this morning, how we savor the Savior of the story. John ends his gospel by three times pleading with Peter, saying, if you love me, feed my sheep. There's more work left to be done. Mark ends with the promise that Jesus is going before them to Galilee. There's more work yet to be done. Matthew ends with the vastly understated Great Commission, verses 16 and 20 of Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples, that's because Judas was dead, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What does Jesus speak into the face of your doubt? The purpose of the gospel. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is more work left to be done. As Luke ends, Jesus ascends into heaven and with great joy, the disciples go back to Jerusalem waiting for the Holy Spirit. There is more work left to be done. Jesus is the end. He is the end of your fear. He is the the end of the damnation of God's wrath. He is the end of faking it until you're making it. He is the end of exhausted, white-knuckled living. He is the end of all of the intellectual inconsistencies you fear. But for those who see him as the secret of the kingdom of God, he is the beginning of all that will follow. You see, Jesus is a savior worthy of your life because it is only Jesus who could be the savior of your life. He consumes them. We will always wrestle with finding Jesus worthy of our worship if he's nothing more than the answer on a theology exam. We don't need to make Jesus relevant with fancy screens and worship songs and smoke. Jesus is relevant because he saves us into his story. He makes sense of our moment today by putting it in the middle of his plan to redeem his people in his place and to bring them to his presence today. You exist in relationship to him. And this is the kind of savior Jesus is. We don't invite him into our story. He invites us into his. And when we do that, we receive his promise to carry us, to work in us, and to comfort us until he takes us home again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you to open our eyes. We need, as you say to Peter, to have the clarity of this revealed to us, not by flesh and blood, but by God who is in heaven. And Lord Jesus, we uh, have no better way to apply this to our hearts today than to celebrate a baptism which is what we're about to do. And so, Lord, as we rejoice with Ashley of what God has done in her life, we ask that you call many more to the same story of salvation, to faith in Jesus Christ. And that those who have been called, that we worship, and we know that even today, as we leave on a Super Bowl Sunday, that the greatest thing that happens today is not a score on a board, but instead that we get to participate in the unfolding plan of history. And we know that the best is yet to come. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.